Chapter 9. Conclusion Robust, down-to-earth technical possibilities for constructing new regimes of infrastructural sanity exist, and new ones can emerge and flourish. Survival on Earth depends on the reformulation of skewed hierarchies of development. We can survive without oil, but we cannot survive without water. How we approach the fundamental shift away from hydrocarbon-dependent cultures will determine our fate. And yet, in tandem with military weapons, petrochemicals, and radioactive materials, misused concrete structures continue to be produced in the face of radical ecological uncertainty. This existential dilemma intensifies as intervention assumes the scale of landscape. In 2010 to 2011 alone, as I write, massive environmental disasters pour oil and radioactive isotopes into rivers, deltas, bays, and oceans, while, against massive and long-standing protests, both Brazilian and Chilean governments move forward with monumental hydroelectric dam projects in Amazonia and Patagonia. And even after the BP disaster, the U.S. government lifted the moratorium on deep-water oil drilling. From the effects of long-term exposure to toxic substances on frog sperm formation, to the contorted river and ocean migration paths of fish and cetaceans, scientists can demonstrate, warn, and appeal to the force of law, but never fully apprehend or manage the risks we take and the harms we cause. Water is not only essential, but infinitely complex, mysteriously inside and outside living beings. Its quantities are finite, and its treasured qualities vulnerable. This is why ecologically appropriate versions of the precautionary principle must be discovered and made manifest for specific types of habitat and cultural conjuncture, and then applied to flexible models of infrastructure design and construction. I believe that the conceptual sources of collective invention needed to implement the precautionary principle can be found in a dynamic negotiation between technically assessed and globally circulated best practices, on the one hand, and the different cultures of nature that animate the human-water relationship in particular places, on the other hand. Thanks, curses, prayers, posters, petitions. Devotees visit an inner sanctum on a peninsula above the Bay of All Saints, where life-size plastic legs and arms hang from a church ceiling above photos of hydrophilic saved persons. Others visit a cool, dark remnant of a monkey forest, bringing spiritual offerings to the spring. In bars and restaurants, folk from near and far consume the waterscape as they savor seafood and beer, deeply floating in the unthought known. A group of displaced river people stand in a public square, eyes raised to the windows of judges above, their protest banners flapping in the cold wind. Shipping containers from foreign ports glide in and out of bays against blue-green maritime hues. The red, green, blue, and yellow boxes command some transient notice by the distant, collective eye of high-rise inhabitants who may or may not suspect that the ordinary-looking containers conceal dangerous or illegal entities. 
Although arbitrary, this small selection of images, cultural in the most superficial sense perhaps, encode prediscursive signals of aquatic meaning, mobilized and globalized for complicated ends. It may seem odd that such subtleties and quirks, or the passing strange, might be included in a conclusion. But paradoxically, because harms associated with particular practices intensify and elude attention when they generalize and dominate aquatic spaces, that is, when destruction itself is naturalized, it becomes difficult to untangle the right and wrong of things without noticing the shadows of discourse, the things left out, where the uncanny meets the mundane, and the mundane meets environmental crime.